before you open your Bibles and turn there, I wanted to make a uh, important observation, something that we noticed even this morning. Um, we are at the one or two Sundays of the year, you may have noticed, where the sun is not in our favor for a morning service, right? And so we have this big, beautiful sun shining through the windows, which is as it should be. That's why the windows are there. That's why the building faces this direction. Um, it's supposed to be, in a sense, symbolic, transcendent. Uh, but you slap lyrics up for the songs that we're singing right next to it, and it becomes a difficulty. Um, the reason why I mention that is because there is this this problematic portion of our experience as human beings. And we saw it in force, and we're about to experience the other half of it right now. Here's what it is. If you uh, have been with us this morning since the beginning, James opened up talking about the importance of daily proclaiming God's faithfulness. Uh, and then we sang these songs that are uh, about how, how beautiful and how glorious and how great God is. And now as we transition to a passage that's not just practical, but is dealing with an issue that most of us would rather not talk about, divorce, it's, it's easy to keep those two things separate. It's easy to feel like, at the very least, the sun was just distracting us from the reality of the practical, but in actuality, those two things have to be kept together. We cannot understand the what of this passage this morning if we forget the who. And so you have to keep in mind as we look at these issues, especially in a culture that already has very clear answers on what divorce is, when divorce should happen, uh, how to view all these things, to keep in mind who's behind this message, to keep together the God who is glorious, who has our best interest in mind, who gives his laws not arbitrarily, but because he loves us and because it's the best, all of these things. We have to be able to hold on to that as we look this morning. So with that being said, if you've got a Bible this morning, please open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one tucked in the back of a pew nearby. And you can use the index at the beginning to find the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. By nature of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, if you were to attend for all four weeks that we're going to be going through this chapter, at least one of those weeks is going to appear, appear irrelevant for you. And so if you're single and you came last week, we talked extensively about the importance of sex within marriage, and it's easy to render that to being irrelevant, if not irritating. Um, there, all of us will be in that experience somewhere. We will address, as I said earlier, not just singled and married, but widowed, and there's, there's many categories it deals with, and so it's worthwhile as we look at this passage to just reflect on why we all need to be here for this, okay? One of the reasons that's very obvious is that the Bible spends a lot of time preemptively training you for life. The illustration I use all the time is that um, if you have a fire extinguisher, it has instructions on it. And although they're ba very basic, the worst time to learn those instructions is when something's on fire, right? It's much better to have read them preemptively so that when a fire happens, you already know what to do. And so for some of these things that we're going to co uh, cover this morning that might not apply to you now, they may very well apply to you later, okay? The other reason why this is important and why we all need to be get together for this is because the Bible sees the Christian life as a community happening. In other words, even if you're single, you have a role to play in the lives of the married people of our church. If you're married, you have a role to play in supporting the lives of the singles in our church. Um, the New Testament, in fact, makes a great emphasis on the church's role in taking care of widows. And so these passages are important because they're important to others in our congregation, okay? The other reason why these things are important for all of us to learn is, is as we saw last week, the realities of sex and marriage, uh, the realities of the haves and the have-nots across the board in Scripture always point towards something bigger, even though our experiences may be different in them. 
For example, some of us will live a wealthy life and some will live a poor life. Some will live a healthy life and some will struggle with the difficulties of living in a fallen and broken world and disease and these things. Some will experience the goodness of marriage and some will experience the goodness of singleness and both of those goodnesses come with another side. But all of them God uses in his word to point forward to something greater, point forward to something more important. And so somewhere in your life, the haves are reminding you that what you have is not enough, okay? And any of us who are married recognize the fact that even the idealistic way the scriptures talk about marriage feels distant to us. We, we may just scratch the surface of the goodness of that, but the danger for marrieds is being self-satisfied and going, well, I'm married, my life is fulfilled, and just shutting down to the need for anything more. The danger for singles is feeling like, because I don't have this, my life is worthless. But the reality is the same. Both of those realities can and should point us beyond to the fact that God has these things built into human life because their ultimate fulfillment, their final goal, not only will all of us as Christians experience it, whether you had practice in life or not, whether you had experience or not, um, but none of us will experience it fully until the consummation of all things, until it's all brought together. And so all of that to say, it may sound irrelevant. It may seem out of, out of uh, things or unimportant to you, but in actuality, there's lots here for us as a church this morning. So what I'd like to do is um, read the passage through. We're going to cover verses 6 through 16 this morning, and then we'll pray and we'll take a look. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth here in verse 6, says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, not I, or excuse me, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case as the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray. God, I pray that by your grace we would be able to hold together the who and the what this morning. I pray that we would recognize uh, how this passage meets us where we're at and calls us to follow God where we are. I pray that you'd help us to deal with the fact that uh, we live in a fallen world and we ourselves are sinners. And so, um, to some degree, the only reason this passage is applicable is because of those realities. And so it can be painful to look at. I pray that you'd help us to do it with honesty and yet with hope recognizing both the good message that underlies this uh, and the fact that there is true forgiveness and a way forward, uh, Lord, that the game's not over till it's over and so that you have things for us now. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, in this passage, Paul addresses a couple of different groups of people. First, he deals with the unmarried. Um, he will come back and deal with single life extensively in the following weeks. He, he front-ends marriage in this chapter and then deals with the single, but he does make a reference to it this morning. Then he speaks to marriages where both, both spouses are Christians, both of them are believers and are part of the church, and then finally he speaks to a mixed marriage where uh, what you should imagine here is that the married couple is already married and then one of them becomes a Christian, and he addresses, um, he addresses that group of people. Uh, for starters, notice that in verse 6, he makes a concession. 
He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. This is a difficult phrase to begin with um, because it's hard to tell what he's talking about. There's quite a few commandments in this passage and there's quite a few concessions that he makes, but which one is he referring to? Which one is he trying to draw out? Um, If you just pay attention to the way that I've cut the paragraph this morning, I believe most likely the concession is what he's about to say about singleness, about his own life as an example of what that can look like. However, it's very possible, and some would say even likely, that the concession has already happened. That verse 6 is the close of last week's section and not the opening of this week's section. In that case, what he's saying is, uh, if you'll remember in verse 5, he, he says this, Do not deprive one another, speaking of sex in the marriage relationship, except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you may deso- devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. In other words, he may be saying, listen, I'm not saying that you should stop having sexual relationships, take a break and pray. He's trying to be clear, if you were with us last week, on the importance of this reality, and so he wants them to understand, even this, I'm making an allowance, that if this is something you feel is necessary, go ahead and do it, but I'm not telling you you should do it. If you understand what's going on in the Corinthian church, his reasoning for that makes sense. It's basically this. The Corinthian church had decided that sex was not just gross, but was some sort of lesser reality to be avoided if you really wanted to live the good life. And so here, he may be just drawing the line as clear as possible and saying, I am still wholeheartedly not in that camp. But I will make a concession that maybe this is appropriate for some couples. Okay, that's a possibility, and I think it's a good one. However, when you look at the passage as a whole and you look at the way that he speaks of singleness, let's read it that way and and see how it sounds. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. Okay. Now, what he's referring to here is the fact that he is unmarried. He's saying, I wish that everyone was single like I am. He continues and he says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, the reason why that concession is important to this verse is because there's been this tendency to pit marriage and singleness against one another. Uh, And so, for uh, for example, for thousands of years in the church, marriage was a secondary condition. In fact, oftentimes that was drawn from this passage. In a second, he's going to say, if you don't have self-control, then by all means get married. And so the way they saw it was there were the really self-controlled, hyper-righteous, capable people who can do the right thing and not have sex and not get married. And then there was the ones that, at, at, at best, you know, don't, don't, don't do a bunch of sexual sin, but at least get married and, and then it's, a, it's half okay, right? So there's that camp. And we're at a place in the church, actually, where we've completely reversed that. And so now we've elevated marriage and singleness as some sort of second-class condition, right? It's important to remember the world that Paul is speaking in, okay? For starters, in the Jewish world, in the Jewish mindset, Paul himself being a Jew, marriage is super important. Some Jewish rabbis actually said to not get married and have children is like murdering the generation that hasn't shown up yet. Men who didn't get married by the age they were 20 were seen as failures as men and possibly even wicked. Someone as far to say that you could not enter the gates of heaven without being married. And one of the reasons this is the case is because for Israel, the promise was always built into their children. Right? It begins with Abraham. Through your seed, through your descendants, I will fulfill the promises. And so barrenness and singleness were seen as not participating in that reality, a curse even from the Lord. Now, listen to the words of Paul in that context this morning, and he says, singleness is good. Okay, he's not saying singleness is better. He's saying something just radical in the fact of putting it on the same par. That's, by the way, the best way to read the chapter, because what does he say? Everybody has their own gifts. He doesn't say some people are cursed and some people are blessed. He says, no, we're all gifted differently, okay? Now, even in the Roman world, this speaks very strongly, okay? The Romans really only dealt with law as a way to maintain order, okay? Maybe you've heard the great quote about how the Romans saw 
the way to keep the masses in check with bread and circuses, right? Make sure they're well fed, keep them entertained, everything's good. And so the way that they went about marriage and divorce laws were basically the same, but they required a widow to get remarried with six months or less. That, that was just the way that they saw this. It was like, you need to get married right now. And here, even to the Romans, he's saying, no, there is an option here that you need to consider. Singleness is good. And so what he says, though, at the same time, he doesn't want to feed their misunderstanding, which is sex is bad. So how can he say singleness is good without them hearing, aha, I knew it, sex is bad, sex is secondary? He points to himself and he says, I'm saying this as a concession. I'm not commanding you all to be single, but I do wish everybody was single like I am. What he's saying is, I found this to be a beneficial state. And, and let's just recognize the life that Paul lived, which was transitory, which was difficult, which was filled with um, times of hunger and poverty, um, and at the same time, tremendously fruitful for what God had called him to. We'll get more into this in weeks to come, but I want you just to recognize this morning that we need to maintain both of these realities, that singleness is good, okay? Now listen, even in a culture that is primarily single, there is a lot of language we use that is alienating to single people and does not live up to the way that this is put. When we're constantly asking people, when are you going to get married? When we're constantly putting the, the weight on that difference, when, uh, when we're only interested in the single people we see by seeing if that status is about to change and all we ever talk to them about is who they're dating or if they're dating or how it's going or these types of things, we're falling short of this reality. Okay? When we elevate marriage to being... Um, to being the only way that a Christian life can be lived, we do the same thing. On the other hand, on the other hand, we have to be careful. We have to be careful to maintain the good reality of marriage and sex within marriage, recognizing that not everyone will experience it. In fact, I would argue that there's a major portion of our culture right now that isn't married for really bad reasons. Okay? Because they haven't adopted the biblical view of marriage, which, as we saw last week, is ultimately about giving up your freedom for something better, which is ultimately about pursuing intimacy and relationship, which is inherently in its nature self-giving and not self, uh, self-receiving. Okay? The reality is many people are single because they can't find that dream person who will demand nothing of them and satisf- satisfy their every whim. And so there's a lot going on in the culture that Paul is writing to, and there's a lot going on in our culture, and we have to kind of wade through all of that and try and keep perspective, but the perspective is very simple. Singleness can be a good thing. Marriage can be a good thing. Marriage can be a bad thing, okay? This is where it gets important this morning, because what we're effectively forced to talk about this morning is bad marriages, right? A pastor once said in a sermon, a friend of mine, he said, we so often feel like if something is hard or difficult or if we're failing at it, then what God wants us to do is walk away from it. And as an illustration, he said, if you're married and you're a bad husband, God doesn't want you to get a divorce. He wants you to be a better husband. And I've always found that a helpful illustration everywhere except on on this topic, except on the topic of marriage, because then it's a little close to home. But before Paul even gets into marriage, what he wants to recognize here is that singleness is a viable option and one that should be considered, okay? Now, Paul's about to quote Jesus. He'll say, I, not I, but the Lord said, and he refers to, and we'll look at this passage in the gospel, and interestingly enough, we'll see the same thing, that there, Jesus lays out the seriousness of the reality of marriage and also points to singleness as being a viable option. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 7 before we move forward. He says, or sorry, yeah, verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has its own gift from God, one of a kind and one of another. Do you see what he says here? He says that singleness is a gift, and then what does he apply by referring to other gifts? That marriage is a gift as well. Okay. 
let me just hammer it in one more time, whether you're single or married this morning, to find boasting in that because you have the self-control not to need another person or because you're put together enough to be marryable is ridiculous, okay? Paul says, you want to know why you're single? You want to know why you're married? Because God is gracious, because God has given, right? You know what's really interesting? Later in this passage, he deals with gifts, the same word, charisma, charismata. Uh, He deals with gifts again, and he does it in almost the exact same way. You see, in the church in Corinth, there was this obsession with these um, manifestations of the Spirit of God. The Bible declares that when you become a Christian, God's Spirit comes to reside in you, and he also gifts you in a way that benefits the rest of the church. And what happened in Corinth is those gifts became badges, and so there were the really spiritual ones with the good gifts, and then there were the secondary people who didn't have the good gifts. And so they really valued the gifts that were miraculous and the ones that were abnormal, like speaking in tongues, speaking in another language, and had no need or necessity for gifts like encouragement or service. And what's really interesting is Paul goes about it the exact same way. He says, you really value tongues? And he's like, I speak in tongues more than all of you. And he says, but, but, God has given gifts to each for the benefit of all. And if you make it a reason for, he handles it in the exact same way. Here's here's what I'm trying to say. One of the challenges of human life is contentment. And one of the solutions to contentment, according to the Christian view, is to recognize God as the giver, okay? And that's not just some sort of stoic, well, the only hand you can play is the one that you were dealt. It's something greater and more beautiful than that. It's the fact that God doesn't give bad gifts, okay? Now, all you have to do is take the truth of God being sovereign, meaning he makes all the decisions that impact your life, and the truth of God being good, And although it's hard to see and hard to reconcile, that's a direct inference of those two principles. What I'm saying to you this morning is the life that you live is God-ordained for your good, whether single or married, whether apparently at this moment hard or easy, whether you're experiencing the have-nots or the haves. And we have such a tendency to oversimplify and grass is all the greener and say, well, the real gifts are over there. And Paul says, listen, We do have different gifts, and that's true. But the worst thing you can do when someone gives you a gift is never unwrap it because you're looking at that gift over there, right? Because then you don't enjoy either gift. That's what Paul's trying to hit on this morning. That's what he's trying to emphasize. And so here he says, if you're single, you should consider remaining single. And then he's going to go on and say, if you're married, you should consider remaining married, that even a difficult marriage, which is the only place, am I right, where the question of divorce comes up? It's not usual dinner conversation when you're content in your marriage to go, are we sure that divorce isn't a viable option, right? It's just not a thing. If he's talking to this, he's talking to disgruntled marriages, but the reason he starts on the single side is because marriage, even a hard marriage, even a marriage to an unbeliever is a gift because it's God-ordained and he has a plan for it. Now, there's one other thing that I want to lay on the tracks before we move forward because it will be hard. I know it will be hard for some of us to go through these things because our lives are full of of problems. We come from broken homes. We witness these things go down in our lives. Some of us may be the uh, make be in our second marriage or be widowed or have experienced these things. All of these realities are possible. One of the things I want you to notice this morning is that repentance or obedience, pick whichever one you want, looks different where you're at. If you try and take the advice of this passage and bring it into a place where it doesn't belong, you will be misled. Paul is going to speak to this, this morning to people who are not yet married, to people who are married, to people who were married, to people who are remarried, and everyone he, he gives a different piece of direction. That's super important, okay? One of the things that I love about that is the Bible recognizes that things go wrong in life, and it doesn't say you have to erase all that to get back to God. What I'm saying this morning is if you're in need of restoration, it's available to you where you are. And that's surprisingly good news, okay? Now, 
Let's take a look. What does he say here? Verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, first off here, when he says the unmarried and the widows, most likely he's using the word unmarried to refer to what we would call widowers. The reason I say that is because this passage is consistently swinging between men and women from verse 1 of chapter 7 all the way through the end of the chapter. The other thing is the word widower is as odd in Greek and hardly used as the word widower is in English. And so for him to say the unmarried and the widow here and put them together in such a way, most likely that's what he's doing. He could be speaking to just unmarried as in single and then people who, who their spouse has died. That's possible as well. He's going to deal with single people eventually in basically the same way. But, but it makes the most sense to me that what he's talking about here is, is those who were once married, those who have lost their spouse. And he says, it's good for them to remain single as I am. However, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you've been married, you should consider the opportunity of singleness if you've lost your spouse. However, if if you find in yourself the deep desire, and, and not just a, I'm lonely, but the deep desire it calls here burning with passion, right? It's not just that you feel heat, but feel burning. That's the way Calvin put it. Um, then it's better to remarry. Paul says a similar thing to the widows in 1 Timothy. You see, um, widows were in a hard place in the first century. And the reason is because if they had no husband who was employed and no sons to take care of them, they really didn't have a way to make a living. You wouldn't find widows in Paul's day getting a job at McDonald's to get by. Those opportunities just didn't exist. And so what happened was the church recognized there was this whole class of people that were rendered to destitution and poverty, and they took them on and cared for them as a community, okay? And Paul is talking to a church, uh, church in Ephesus in, in the letter to Timothy, where this is going on, and he's trying to give them guidance on who to put on that roster, who to adopt as a church widow and take care of, and he lays a bunch of things on the table, but one thing he does say, he says, if they are young and widowed, in other words, if they're in their 40s, they should probably pursue getting married instead of taking them on this role, and the reason is because he recognizes that they're young enough they still might want a husband and he doesn't want to put them in a place where they're now celibate and single for the Lord and then tremendously tempted because they want a husband because they have these sexual and beyond that desires. It's the same type of thing here. But once again, we need to maintain the tension here. And he says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion, but I want to be clear here. Paul is not seeing marriage as the solution to sexual temptation. He's being practical. He's recognizing if that's a struggle for you, you probably don't have the gift of celibacy, at least not in the long run. He, he wants to recognize that we have a tendency for really bad reasons to be single and think that we're strong enough to live that alone life, and a lot of times we're wrong. And so he wants us to be thorough here. But if you're caught in that trap this morning where you think all of my sexual temptation would go away if I'm married, I, just as a married person, call foul. Okay? And so will every other married person in this room. That's just not reality, okay? And so Paul, as someone who was probably once married, which, by the way, is another reason why I think he's speaking to the widows and widowers here, Paul was a Pharisee. I already told you how the Jews felt about marriage. He was also part of the Sanhedrin, and legally the Sanhedrin was required to have a wife. He's unmarried now. We don't know what happened in the in-between, but he's speaking here not as a virgin who's been single his whole life, Okay, but as someone who's experienced marriage and is not currently married, and so he addresses them in this way. In contrast, verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Now, why does he say that? It's easy to read that as an emphasis in authority, isn't it? Right? Like, he's, he's, he recognizes that his security clearance isn't high enough for what he's about to say, so he calls in the big guns and says, by the way, this is what Jesus said. In fact, later he says, not the Lord, but I say. And so it sounds like this is real. You have to listen to this. This is just my perspective. That's not what's going on at all. Okay? 
Paul, over and over again throughout his ministry, recognizes that he has the authority of an apostle of Christ, which means he speaks for Jesus. What he's trying to draw your attention to here, what he's trying to remind the Corinthian church of here, is that the problem that they're talking about, the question that they're asking him, has already been answered. That Jesus himself spoke on these things. And so he reminds them here, this isn't new. I don't have to give you a word from the Lord on this fresh out of my own mouth because we already have one. This conversation that he's about to have is recorded for us in Matthew and Mark and Luke. Okay? And so he reminds them of this. Now before we look at the reality here, let me remind you of the context. Most likely what's going on in Corinth is not just divorce as we know it. Um, irreconcilable differences, problems in the marriage. But at the very least, on top of that, there's a category that says, because sex is bad, I, I want to be single, and so I'm going to end this marriage for Jesus. Okay? Which I realize is not commonly a category that we deal with, but it's helpful for us to keep in mind as we look at this passage. But what does he say, verse 10? To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Okay? He speaks very boldly here. He speaks very strongly. He leaves very little left on the table. He doesn't say you should strive to. He doesn't say it's best to. He doesn't say it's good to remain married. He says you should not separate. He keeps the door very closed. And the reason why is because, once again, he's referring to the words of Jesus. And so it's worth our while to take a look at that this morning. Look with me at Matthew the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. As I mentioned, we find similar passages in Mark and Luke. The reason I'm drawing your attention to Matthew this morning is because Matthew also deals with singleness. Um, it, it contains a conversation that Jesus has, a follow-up conversation that Jesus has with his disciples on singleness, and so it seems to me to be the one that Paul is thinking of. So here in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 1, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and a large crowd followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Okay, so notice a couple of things here. First, a little bit of context. It says here that the Pharisees came testing Jesus. The reason it says that is because the Jewish culture was divided on the issue of divorce into two camps, following behind two famous rabbis, okay? Um, one rabbi said that the only grounds for divorce is sexual immorality, and the other said, the Bible doesn't say that. It never says what the grounds for divorce are. If she burns your eggs, this is literally his illustration, you can send her away, okay? And so what he's really trying to do, why this is a test, is they're trying to get Jesus to alienate half his audience. Decide with one and alienate the other half, or the other and alienate the first half, okay? And what Jesus does here is he speaks even more strongly. He doesn't consult the law of Moses at all, and he goes back to the beginning, and he says, in Genesis, it tells us that marriage is more than just something that we do legally, right? that it is the joining by God of a man and a woman in what God has joined, let no one tear apart. He speaks very strongly here. Notice that when the disciples hear this, how do they respond? Look again at verse 10. If such is the case 
of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Do you notice that he doesn't clarify that? He doesn't say, oh, you misunderstood me. Yeah, I'm, I, it's not as, as you know, straight edge as it sounds. He leaves them in that. They came to the right conclusion. And he says, however, singleness is an option. And he talks about the three types of eunuchs, those who are born that way, those who are made that way. That's not really a normal thing in our day and age, but in that day, castrating somebody was a reality. Uh, and those who become so for the kingdom of God. Do you see how it runs parallel to Paul's passage to the Corinthians? The same concept here. It's good, singleness is an option, but it's also something that only some people have received. Okay? But that doesn't downplay the seriousness and the permanence built into marriage as, Bible, as the Bible sees it. Okay? He speaks very strongly here. So now going back to Paul, when he quotes this, he says, let not, let not a wife separate from her husband or else, uh, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Notice once again the mutuality. Okay, he, he doesn't say only men can divorce their wives, which is what the Jews had a tendency to say. He, he says this shouldn't happen. Divorce shouldn't happen. Now, it's clear to me that Paul is aware of the exception that Jesus gives, except for sexual immorality, and he doesn't bring it into the context because they already know it, right? He's quoting Jesus. He does, it looks like, provide an exception. In your Bibles, it may be in parentheses. Either way, it's the content of the first half of verse 11. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. That makes it sound like there's a divorce is bad, but if you have to, then it needs to look like this. Most likely, that's not what Paul's saying. This phrase here is in the past tense. What he's accurately saying is, but if you have already gotten a divorce... I told you earlier, it speaks differently to people in different categories. Okay? If you were married this morning, don't get divorced. If you've gotten a divorce, either remain single or be reconciled in the relationship. If they've been remarried, it brings us into another category. Okay? Um, but, but like I said here, the, the rule is, is really strong. And I do not want you to be hijacked by the what-ifs and the exceptions this morning. Okay. There's lots of other places we could talk about, but you have to understand the rule before you can answer the exceptions. Okay. Now, to us, this sounds like a prison sentence. It says, well, divorce is so bad in God's eyes that he'd rather you just be trapped. You're just stuck. You made a bad choice. You made your bed, now lie in it. Uh, you know, basically, God is punishing you for your lack of insight when you said, I do. There is a completely different way to read this that I think is really important, okay? Divorce is effectively something the coroner does when he takes the pulse of a marriage. This marriage is dead, okay? That's what divorce means. What God has joined together is now over, destroyed. There's no going back. That's, that's a better understanding of divorce. What Paul is pointing out here is even if there's the lightest pulse in a marriage, even if it's hard and difficult, it doesn't mean that it can't be saved. Really, what Paul is talking about here is a hope that's so dark for us, we tend to lay it aside and feel that it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Okay? But the reality is, if you're asking, is divorce God's will for my life right now? The answer is always going to be no. And there is an exception, but even in the exception, if you paid attention in Matthew 19, Jesus says, in the result of sexual immorality, which breaks a marriage, divorce is permitted, not required. That's important as well. Okay? Divorce is permitted. Okay? He recognizes that sexual sin like adultery is so profoundly damaging to a marriage. Okay? That's a thing. He's going to give another exception in a moment that we need to pay attention to. Okay. Now, just to get it out of the way, clearly here and nowhere else does Paul or Jesus or any of the New Testament authors address the concept of an abusive marriage, a marriage where it's a danger for you to stay in. Okay. I want to be very clear this morning. If you are in an abusive marriage, call the cops. And if you're afraid to do so, call me and I will call the cops. Okay. The Bible nowhere condones you experiencing abuse and constantly says that we should make use of the legal authorities, okay? 
The Bible says it's completely appropriate to send your spouse to prison if prison is where they need to be. However, however, because the Bible envisions marriage as not just being a satisfying of your own needs, but as being interested in the other, this is such a hard place for us to understand. The Bible says over and over again that God saves sinners. Paul was a terrorist when he became a Christian, okay? And even Christians sometimes do terrible things. And the reality is both those things cannot be allowed to go on and real repentance and restoration and reconciliation is possible in those places. And if we surrender that, we forget and we neglect the power of the gospel, okay? I'm not telling you what to do this morning. But if you don't understand the realities as the Bible paints it, then you live in a very hopeless place. There's hope even here. So, he says, if you're married, don't, do not pursue being unmarried. Okay? And he says, if you're divorced, you should either continue on in singleness or seek to restore that relationship. Now, I can't think of anything that's more unbelievable to a culture like ours. How often do you think it is that a divorced couple gets remarried? It happens. I've, I've even known couples where it happened. I've never known couples who weren't Christians who weren't familiar with this passage where it happened. But it's a very tremendously rare thing. But the thing that he's trying to recognize here is that marriage is permanent in the eyes of God and can't be easily broken. Jesus says in, a, uh, in the Mark version of that gospel, anyone who marries a divorced person commits sexual immorality. Now, when you put that with the exception we read in Matthew, sexual immorality is already there. It's already present. And so I would add to this that if you are divorced and your spouse gets remarried, there's no going back. In fact, Deuteronomy 24 says that specifically, that it's an abomination to try and take back your spouse who's now married someone else for obvious reasons, right? Trying to restore a relationship by destroying another relationship doesn't make any sense. Now, he comes to what I think is a really interesting exception and a really interesting case study that helps us to reflect on the whole of this. He does this in verse 12. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So first he says, to the rest. It's pretty clear here that the Corinthian church had questions about marriage, and Paul puts them in two categories. Ones where both spouses are Christians, and we've just read that passage, and one where, uh, where part of the marriage is an unbeliever, a non-Christian, someone outside the church. Now, we can take a pretty good guess at how the Corinthian church would have viewed this. They would have thought things like, oh man, even, even if sex within marriage with a Christian is okay, surely it's not okay with a non-Christian. And so the best thing you can do is just sever that relationship. In fact, we know in a previous letter that Paul said to them, do not associate with the sexually immoral or, all, or the idolaters. And so maybe they saw this as being obedience, that my life is so drastically changed as a Christian, I need to sever this relationship. I'm not to associate with people like this. That's what makes the, this advice needed for the Corinthian church. He says, I want to clarify here. Now, he adds here, I'm speaking instead of Jesus because Jesus didn't talk about this. And the reason is very simple. A mixed marriage in Israel, not a thing. Absolutely not a thing, okay? And so Paul is addressing a church in Corinth where this is happening, where people are becoming Christians and where their Gentile spouses still worship the gods of Corinth or these types of things. And so he addresses it, and he does so in what I still feel is a very surprising way. He says, maintain the marriage. Listen to his reasoning. He says, if your spouse consents to continue the marriage, you should not divorce them. Verse 13, if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Why? For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Why does he use that phraseology? Clearly what Paul is saying here is not, well, don't worry, your spouse gets, gets a free ride. They're saved because you are. 
That's clearly not what Paul is talking about. Why does he use the word of holy and later the word of clean and unclean? Because that's how the Corinthian church was thinking. They were thinking, oh, you're married to a non-Christian, your, your marriage is defiled, right? You're living in the same house with, you're living your life together with, and so he's constantly dirtying your relationship with the Lord. And Paul turns it on his head and he says, no, no, the marriage is made holy because there's a Christian present in it. It's sanctified, it's set apart for this reason. And the reason is very simple, okay? Because when a spouse in a marriage becomes a Christian, like it or not, Jesus enters into that house, okay? The marriage now has another component to it. It's not a fully agreed upon component, it's not a shared component, which, by the way, makes it very difficult. The Roman culture saw it as a horrible thing not to worship the gods of your spouse, and basically, it was part of their premarital counseling, okay? And you can imagine, can't you, the strain that this would put on a relationship? Because there are things that your spouse used to do that they will no longer do. And there are ways your spouse used to think that they would no longer think. As I was reading through commentaries on this passage, I found one pastor who had spoken to a non-Christian man who just said, she's no longer the wife that I married. And that reality is a true one, okay? I'm not who I was before I was a Christian. And every once in a while, I'll interact with somebody from high school, and they have no way to draw a line from point A to point B in my life. I'm, I'm as if I'm a different person, okay? And that does bring a new dynamic into marriage. And Paul says, from a Christian perspective, that's a good dynamic. It makes the reality and the goodness and the power of Christ unavoidable because now you live with him. You've gained another roommate, right? And so he says it sanctifies the marriage. Is that a hard calling? Absolutely. I've known many, many people since I've been involved in ministry whose spouse weren't believers. I've known many women who I never met their husbands because they never came to church. And I've talked with them deeply, and I know the difficulty of that relationship. I know how hard that is. But Paul here says, not just divorce is not an option. He says if they're willing to stay, he says something better. He says, this is an opportunity. This is a way to love your non-Christian spouse. Now, read again with me verse 14 for clarification's sake. For the unbelieving husband's made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Why does he bring children into this? It's clear here that the principle remains the same, that if one of the parents is a Christian, then they bring Christ into parenting, okay? That, by the way, is what happened to Timothy, Timothy grew up in a house with a Gentile father and a Jewish mother, and we find out in 1 Timothy that his mother and his grandmother, both Jewish, brought the scriptures into his life. And so when Paul came preaching Jesus, the dots connected very naturally, okay? And so the presence of this Jewish wife in that marriage made all the difference to Timothy. But it seems more likely here that he's pointing to something that even the Corinthians wouldn't believe. They wouldn't believe that a mother needs to leave her children because they're dirty, because they're not Christians, right? There's a direct implied recognition that you can bring Christ into your parenting and you can minister Jesus to your kids and you may have a role to play in bringing them to Jesus. That's the same thing it says about the marriage. Notice what it says in the last verse there, verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay. Now, you need to hear that both sides. Clearly, he's trying to be optimistic and say, hey, here's an opportunity for you to witness to somebody all the time, right? Completely different than a stranger on the streets, completely different than an event-based evangelism. This is lifestyle evangelism in the closest setting, okay? Remember here that marriage is a commitment of love. If you're not in a mixed marriage like this, maybe it's easy for us to forget you married that person for a reason. You love that person deeply. And when you said your vows and your I do's, you meant them because you care about the person. And Paul says, how do you know? Maybe this is how it's going to go. And I know many stories like that. But we also need to hear the other side, and this is important. This is not a promise. It doesn't say if you stay in the marriage, God will give you your spouse. Okay. He says, how will you know? The recognition here is that the the self-giving aspect of marriage in this situation 
looks like staying in the marriage because you love your spouse and you want them to know Jesus. Okay? Now, there's one last thing here. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. What does he say? Here's the other exception he gives. He says, if you're in a marriage, you become a Christian and your spouse doesn't and they want nothing to do with you. He says, let them go. Now that's a painful reality and a very difficult one. And what he wants to point to here is the fact that they are no longer bound. Meaning that here is an exception, a true one. That they're not subject to be in a half marriage where they have all the commitments of uh, oneness in a marriage with somebody who's left and walked away. Okay. And he says they're no longer bound. They're no longer tied to that. They're free from that marriage. Now I want you to notice that all of these realities this morning, staying and leaving, going, having divorce in your past or divorce in your future that you're, you're trying to avoid and being called to avoid this morning, all of it's difficult. All of it's painful. The issue here is not what is easy and not what is best for me. It's what's most glorifying to God and what's most loving to my neighbor. In every case, that's how the question is answered. He says here something that applies to all of us, even if you're single this morning. What does he say at the end of verse 15? God has called you to peace. This is what he's saying. He's saying the Christian mission in life is one of peace, not just avoiding conflict. It can be read that way, right? He says, if they want to go, let them go, right? Don't force them to maintain the marriage. God has called you to peace. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that in any relationship, your goal is to bring peace, to be a bringer of peace, to proclaim the peace that's available in Jesus, to bring shalom into your household, to uh, impart to other people something good. Okay. Now, here's one of the ways we get this wrong. Here, the Bible envisions a marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian, but it very explicitly in another place, in fact, later in the chapter, he says, if you're getting remarried, remarry in the Lord. Here's what I'm trying to say. Because there's the possibility of a Christian marrying a non-Christian does not justify you if you are dating or pursuing or engaged to a non-Christian and marrying them. Not only is it a terribly foolish decision, okay? Either you have misjudged the importance of Jesus in your own life or you've misjudged the difference between those two poles. In fact, I will tell you this this morning, that the worst thing you can do for your non-Christian fiancé is to marry them. Because ultimately you're saying there's no difference between you and I. But it's different. The path is different for you wherever you're at this morning. If you're single, if you're engaged, if you're married, if you're divorced, if you're remarried, it all looks differently. It's important to maintain that. The last time I taught on divorce was years ago, and a man came up to me, a friend of mine, in tears. And he said, look, I've been married twice. I'm in my third marriage now. Neither of the divorces that I went through were good. None of them had biblical justification or grounds. Here I'm at, and with tears in his eyes, he said, what does God want me to do? Does he want me to divorce my wife and go back to my first wife and try again? And I said, no. For the same reason I said earlier, the idea that God would want to destroy a relationship to salvage another is, is outside of the confines of what this is. But one of the beauties of this passage that's easy to miss is wherever you're at, you can follow God right now. There's forgiveness available. On top of that, whatever you haven't achieved yet, haven't gotten to, don't use that as an excuse and go, well, there's always a time to pull the ripcord. I'll go ahead and get the divorce because I know it's the wrong thing and then God will forgive me and I'll live the life of a single. I've been trying to live single and I can't do it, so I'm going to get married again. And right, You'll always be in a place to look towards tomorrow and the reality is obedience never happens tomorrow. And it's a hard word to hear, but Jesus says, he who's faithful in little will be faithful in much and he who's faithful or not faithful in little will not be faithful in much. Obedience tomorrow is never easier than obedience today. But why is it such a big deal? Okay, practically, first and foremost, and even if you can't see it in your own decisions and you're tempted towards divorce this morning, you know it in the other divorces you've experienced, it's because divorce is terribly damaging. 
It's so destructive. Without raising hands this morning, how many of you can testify to what your parents divorced did to you? And in a relationship as well, we have this terrible tendency as human beings to think, all I need to change is my circumstances and I'll be a better and happier person. And the Bible says, no, the greatest struggle you have towards betterness and happiness is internal. And you'll take it into your next relationship. And there's a sense where if you can't find happiness single, you won't find it married. And there's a sense where if you can't find happiness in this marriage, you won't find it in the next marriage. I know I'm overplaying my hand there and there's serious realities and there's a lot in a marriage that you don't do because the other part is not, person is not you, right? All of those things are true, but it doesn't change the importance of this dynamic. And I've said it so many times, I don't know why it's constantly on my heart, but the Bible believes and recognizes that you can be a good spouse and find deep satisfaction and growth in a bad marriage to a bad spouse, but it's important for not just practical reasons. The minor prophets, one of them says that God hates divorce, and one of the reasons is because it's so destructive. But there's another reason, okay? It's because God intentionally designed marriage to say something about himself and the relationship he wants to have with people. Throughout the Old Testament, he sees Israel as his wife, and that's what makes their behavior so damaging. He says, you're spiritual adulterers. He says, here I've given you this marriage and you've gone on every high place and worshipped all these other gods and you've committed adultery against me. And in the New Testament, Paul is talking about the beauty of marriage and he lays it all out in Ephesians 5 and when he's done painting how a husband and wife should live together, he says, I'm really not talking about men and women but about Jesus and his church. And the way he says it there, it becomes clear that he's not saying marriage is a really good illustration of God. He's saying that God has designed marriage to point to himself. Do you hear the difference between those two things, right? If I'm giving you advice and I say it's kind of like an orange, I'm just saying an orange has similarities. What Paul says is God said, how can I explain what I want for people in a relationship with me? I know, I'll create marriage. Do you feel the difference there? What I'm saying is, whether you're married or not this morning, your future marriage, your possible marriage, the marriage you're feeling that God is withholding, it is really pointing to another marriage altogether. And the reason why God hates divorce is because it breaks that pointing. And we see this in so many categories, don't we? Right? How many of us have a hard time accepting or had a hard time accepting God as father because our parents weren't great parents? Do we not recognize that, that this only relationship, the only covenant we have left as human beings, the only one that is till death do us part, the only one that's supposed to be unconditional and permanent, can we understand how the breaking of that breaks the signal, right? It bends the antenna so the reception is harder to receive on what God wants for us. And here's the best part. It's so easy in your marriage to see your spouse as the one that's ruining the marriage. In your relationship with God, it's never going to be that way. And yet God is so committed to you and so interested in you and so permanent that there is nothing you can do to separate you from the love of God. I honestly believe this morning, wherever you're at, if you can fully understand that relationship, your marriage relationship with God, how committed he is to you, how good he is to you, then all of the things that he requires of you in your relationship with other people, including your marriage, get easier to receive. Because you're keeping close those two things that I talked about. That the one who gives the message that we've looked at this morning is the good and glorious God who is love, who has your best interest in heart, who is trying to teach you, even in a bad marriage, about yourself, about who you are in your relationship with God and about who he's determined to be despite those things. Let's pray. Father, we have to confess. We have to confess we stand with your disciples and we just say, if this is the case, then maybe it'd be better to be single. If this is the reality of what's required, it's too much for us. But we thank you for the reality that we don't have to do this alone, that when Christians are married, whether they're both married or one of them, that you're present and working in the marriage, 
that you can bring good things out of hardness, that you can bring uh, good fruit out of barren soil, that you can do above and beyond what we would ask or think. And I pray that we would be a people of hope that recognizes that even these circumstances, even these difficulties, even, even though life hasn't gone my way and I'm shocked at where things are, even here, God can do good things and look to you humbly and obediently to see those things happen. I pray for any who are here this morning who don't know you, who aren't in a relationship with you. I pray that they'd be able to hear the message, the reality that while they were far from you, while they were sinners, while they stood in rebellion against you, you went through all of the difficulty of securing a permanent and unbreakable relationship. You compensated for all of our failures. You set aside all of our disgrace. You cleaned up all of our dirtiness and you're content and determined to make us a beautiful, without spot or blemish, bride for yourself. I pray, Lord, that we would connect the dots this morning between the goodness and the transcendence and the beauty of God and the practical reality of what that looks like in a difficult and broken life. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we worship this morning, um, feel free if you're a Christian to come forward and partake of communion. Communion is almost like a renewal ceremony. It's almost like a repeating of our own marriage vows with the Lord. It's a reminder, uh, you know, and instead of looking to the rings on our fingers or remembering and watching the tape of the video, we're remembering the cost of the relationship we have with God, that his body was broken and that his blood was shed to bring us into the new covenant. And so come and partake and remember this morning and let's just respond together.